of all, I spent about five and a half years in the armed forces, a year in the army in the uh, Hauraki Battalion, the territorials to start with, and on my 18th birthday I uh, in, uh, tried to enlist in the RMZAF. And around about a year later, or a little less than that, in 1941, I finally was called up and uh, we went through the usual course of training at ITW, initial training wing, square bashing and the lectures and that type of thing. And then on to flying, where we flew Tiger Moss, and I hope the Tiger Moss is a pick it up there, has it? Yes. Uh, where uh, I had never flown before in my life, however, we learnt to fly, it took me about nine hours, ten minutes, I think, to go solo, which wasn't too bad. I was pretty slow. <laughs> um, I always wanted to be a fighter pilot, so from there we went on to a hakia, and to my horror I found I was down to be a bomber pilot. Well, that was the last thing I wanted to do, it was too dangerous to start with. <laughs> so I managed to persuade them to put me on to the fighter side, where we flew Hawker Hines. Now, the Hawker Hines was a big aircraft, quite antiquated, and I'm not going to dwell too long on the characteristics of these different things. Um, and uh, But it was very difficult to land, tended to play a lot. So having finished that, we got our wings and uh, I was sent straight over to Britain, uh, where, of course, we had flown only antiquated aircraft. And so the next phase was the AFU, which was uh, Advanced Flying Unit. And a lot of people here would have gone through that, I should think, where we flew Miles Masters. That was a vicious type of aeroplane, very fast, very good trainer but quite vicious in a tight turn. If it, if it happened to stall, you'd flick into a very vicious spin straight away. But So they were good to learn on as far as the fighters were concerned. From there, uh, and there I flew my first hurricane. They had a hurricane there, and there's a photograph I hope has turned up with myself sitting in the cockpit of that hurricane. <clears throat> From there we went to OTU, the operational training unit where I was on hurricanes. And there we had to learn to not only fly the hurricane as, as a part of yourself, but also to fight with them too and use them as a gun platform. Um, and to my great pleasure and great surprise, I was posted to a Spitfire squadron, which was 610, County of Chester squadron, uh, situated in 12 group in uh, Norfolk, just south of uh, Coltishaw uh, or Norwich. And there we did the usual type of operations, Jim Crow's, uh, convoy patrols, rhubarbs over Holland, and then down to 11 group where we, we did uh, balvos and sweeps and so on over France where I had my first combat. And to my great surprise, I was shot at and I didn't see a thing. And, uh, <laughs> um, as far as I was concerned, <laughs> only we were really the only one in the sky. But uh, I must admit, uh, it's quite a terrifying, terrifying experience to be the, 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 the new chum flying at the very back of the formation. You were the first guy they attacked and you knew very little and didn't see anything. So you were really totally exposed. So we spent quite a while, a major effort, I think, while I was on that squadron was the Dieppe show where we lost a few, few of our people. Um, and. Um, and I think the RAF lost quite a lot, actually. So uh, after a while on that squadron, I was posted to Malta, where it was intended that uh, 
I flew off a, an aircraft carrier. And to my great uh, um, relief, uh, I didn't make it as far as that to start with. When I got to Gibraltar, <coughs> having flown hurricanes, apparently as a rare sort of a person, I was put uh, down for the job as a night fighter um, protection over Gibraltar, and the only one, uh, while well, they prepared for the torch landings, there was a mass of tanks and spitfires and things on the, uh, on the rock waiting for the torch landings, which are the, the landings in North Africa. And fortunately for me, and for them too, for that matter, the Germans didn't raid at all. So, um, uh, okay, we assembled spitfires during the day. The torch landings occurred, and uh, at that stage, I must admit, I posted myself to 81 Squadron with a couple of my friends who were posted legitimately to it. But I posted myself, grabbed a Spitfire, and went off with them. I was listed as a deserter later on, as I discovered, but my CEO very kindly got me out of that little rap. <laughs> uh, so, and, and at that time, it was three days after the landings, uh, we had a pretty tough time at uh, our, uh, Maison Blanche, where we lived in ditches and no food and so on, uh, while get, getting our aeroplanes serviced and we went on to Bone and I, all I'll say about Bone and there's somebody else here who was at Bone, I read in the book, 72 Squadron, they were in a, a different strip further up at Major, Major Zeldad in North Africa. Bone was a hellhole, uh, I, I won't say any more than that, if I have time later I can describe it, but uh, okay, the North African campaign finished and uh, or incidentally a bone, we were separated by about 30 miles from Berserta, which was the main German fighter base. And the Germans threw everything they could at us there. We had the, the uh, uh, Larry Hill mentioned JG-53, which was the, the Picasso boys, the um, Ace of Spades uh, fighters, and uh, they, um, we were up against them. We got massacred. We were flying Spitfire, Mark 5s with a tropicalized filter. I don't know whether you can see that up there. Uh, they were very poorly performed. We flew Spitfire Mark 5s in Britain and we didn't handle them well against the Falkland Front 90s. At that time, well, here we had the M109Gs and, and the Falkland Front 90s up against us and uh, we didn't handle that well either. In the finish, we got uh, massacred. We ended up with one aeroplane and only a few pilots. When we were withdrawn, we got Spitfire Mark 9s, which were much better. However, from there, the, the campaign finished, and uh, uh, lots of stories about that. We went on to Malta, where the bombing was still going on, and uh, a little bit of action at Malta there, but with the extra fighter force, uh, we managed to push them back into Sicily. Uh, we went right through Sicily, uh, where there was quite heavy sort of fighting there with these uh, Spitfire Mark 9s, and then when the Desert Air Force joined us, we were forced to split ours, so we flew both the 9s and the 5s on the one squadron, and that caused a little bit of, uh, of a problem. However, we, we got through it. By that time, we, we had command of the air, and there was a, a, we had our tails up, and there was no problem. Italy, the, my only uh, connection with that was Salerno, where, where I got shot down. Um, and then we uh, were suddenly posted to, to India. 
and uh, that's where I'll start. We went to Cairo where we picked up the Spitfire Mark 8. Now, does that turn up there? Um, the Spitfire Mark 8, oh, I can't see it. Can you show the Spitfire Mark 8, Mike? Uh, that, those are the Mark 5s. That's the Spitfire Mark 8. Beautiful machine. Clean lines, retractable tailwheel. Uh, it had a. All the other aeroplanes couldn't fly upside down without the engine cutting. Negative G cut the engine on you, so it was a bit of a problem in combat. Uh, with the Spitfire Mark 8, it had a Stromberg carburetor, and you could fly upside, upside down any position at all. And um, so it was a marvellous aeroplane. Clean lines, fast, uh, two stage supercharger, so you uh, got extra boost at, at height, altitude. The planes we picked up had sharp pointed wingtips to start with. You could almost prick your finger on the point. And uh, they were uh, that way to get extra performance at altitude. Well, we flew those all the way up to India, starting off at um, Hell One, where we picked them up and landed at Cairo West, took them to Cairo West, where we were assembled. I had a forced landing by the first one. Um, I had to go back and pick up another one. And uh, from there, we flew to Lydda in Palestine. Um, from Lydda to H3, an oil place in the desert between Baghdad and Palestine, and then on to Habania, which was in Iraq, just south of Baghdad, from there to Kuwait. Um, Baghdad, uh, Habania, we stayed the night, on to Kuwait, uh, refueled, on to Bahrain, where we stayed the, the night there. We had a, we flew in batches of six with a, um, a Blenheim, uh, to keep us on track, navigate for us, because we couldn't, uh, because of the short range of a Spitfire, you couldn't afford to deviate and get lost, uh, or you'd had it in that, those desert countries, and especially the Persian Gulf, which slopped about 30 miles change of coastline, depending on the wind direction. Uh, so it was no place to get lost. Uh, from Bahrain to a place called Sharjah, which is now Dubai, it was an Arabian fort in the middle of the desert then, just all sand. And from there to Juwani in Baluchistan, which was a, another hellhole of heat, uh, where the strip was uh, seemed to be in a, a crater in a, in a mountain. And uh, very hot, and a bad place to be. And from there to Karachi. At Karachi we were re-camouflaged to Burma camouflage and so on, and flew right across India. I had another forced landing at jo um, at uh, Jodhpur, which was our first stop where I had to glide for 30 miles plus and dead stick landing on, a, on, a, on the, an aerodrome there. Um, and from there to New Delhi to Allahabad and then Calcutta. Um, otherwise, uh, relatively uneventful, but it was very unusual for, <laughs> for single engineer planes and so on to fly that distance, I think. Uh, the squadron got the reputation of being the most travelled fighter squadron in the RAF, I think, over that. Um, anyway, uh, we retooled and, and uh, became operational in Calcutta, where there was a raid on, and we had, had to sit on the ground with these Spitfire Mark 8s and watch the Germans um, attacking and bombing uh, Calcutta. Uh, While well, we sat on the ground with no fuel and no, no ammunition, and watched bow fighters and the odd hurricane trying to deal with the Japanese, which uh, happened to be zeros. Um, from, we discussed 
what tactics we were going to employ. Um, we were up against uh, the Japanese fighters. Have you got those on, Mike? First of all, the Zero, which the Japanese seem to mix up their fighters. Um, you couldn't always be certain that they're all of one kind. And the odd Zero used to appear, but mostly we were up against the the fighter, the Zero One, Army Zero One, called the Oscar. They were all codenamed the Zero of Zeke. The uh, Army Zero One was the Oscar, and that was extremely manoeuvrable. We thought unarmored, but apparently it was armored, but the Japanese later on, when they encountered us, uh, removed the armor to improve their maneuverability, whereas they could out-turn us easily. They could do two turns to our one, actually, and uh, very difficult to combat. Uh, as far as dogfighting was concerned. <coughs> the tactics we adopted were the German ones uh, because of our superior speed, climb, uh, power, and armament. We adopted the idea of diving on the Japanese and mostly fighters. Our job was command of the air, which is a gladiatorial type of thing where you're up against the enemy fighters to uh, beat the enemy air force. Then they could, if, if we achieved that, we could use our bombers with uh, relative impunity. So that was our particular job, although we did do strafing at various times. Um, we, uh, we decided our tactics, and, which was dive on the, the enemy and to shoot at them and climb up again and uh, repeat attack after attack with what we thought would be relative impunity. And our first combat was down at the Arakan, and perhaps I can paint a picture now of India. Have you shown India? Um, ah, right. If you, you all know India pretty well. Up the north of the Himalayas, of course, with Tibet and the Mount Everest and so on. But off those road, uh, went two ranges, one to the south called the Chin Hills, which was actually the border between India and Burma. Burma was a relatively narrow, flat strip between two mountain ranges. The other mountain ranges were further to the east, starting at China and, and going down through Laos and all those other <coughs> countries. And uh, I won't worry about them, but the, the ones between uh, forming the Burma-India uh, uh, border, they were called the Chin Hills, and they were 10,000 plus feet high completely jungle covered in those days and I don't know there's a if you just go down one then go back again my uh, the chin hills were uh, you, you could oh, no this is this is what we're up against you just go through the zeros to start with oh, here are the chin hills yes that's a very late photograph they, they were completely jungle clad and they don't present a very good picture there. If you could imagine steep razorback ridges up to 10,000 feet in height, uh, up to 60 degrees steepness, uh, all jungle covered with little valleys in between them and so on, quite small, uh, right for 1,200 miles, and that was the front line. Um, the place where we operated from was Imphal, which was a, a, a valley which we called Shangri-La, right in the middle of those Chin Hills, so that we had to leave the valley and go over the ranges out into Burma where we carried out our operations and then try to come back. And during the monsoon season, uh, you could have a clear sky as we have now. And in a half an hour, you could have a cumulum up to 40,000 feet covering the whole area. 
And so you'd have to go out there and find your way back. And if you went into that cloud, you could have your wings ripped off. In fact, a complete squadron was lost of Spitfires, uh, with uh, most of them killed. Some of them survived. But a complete squadron was lost in one of those clouds, and many other aeroplanes were lost as well. Uh, they were extremely turbulent, and the, the weather over that area is probably the worst in the world. So the, the flying conditions during the monsoon, which was uh, over the summer period, uh, were certainly terrible, and earlier on um, there was a truce called, nobody seemed to operate, but once we got there, uh, just at the end of 1943, uh, they suddenly decided that the war was going to be a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week sort of operation, so we had to fly in these conditions, and, and so did all the other aircraft. Um, now, to start with, we had our first combat down in the Arakan, and uh, the moment we dived on uh, this big gaggle of Japanese fighters, they all went into a great big circle, uh, which we'd heard about but never seen before. And so it wasn't a bad idea, because you'd attack one, and of course the one behind you would be on your tail straight away. And uh, so after the first little stoush with these Japanese, we uh, claimed a number of damaged, uh, but no, none actually were shot down. And when we came back and landed my aeroplane, my ground crew claimed that I'd made a heavy landing, which didn't amuse me very well, very much. But it uh, turned out that the engine mounting was broken and the tail rivets were sprung and I had six inches extra dihedral on the wings, <laughs> uh, which surprised me too. And uh, I must admit that in the first attack I made, which might have caused it, was uh, I knew there was a one latched on my tail, so I did my shooting, which wasn't very accurate. I might say, uh, I'd love an opportunity to talk gunnery to you. It's not easy. <laughs> um, but anyway, I pulled the aeroplane up very, very severely with a lot of G on, and I think that caused the damage. But it wasn't my aeroplane either. Uh, we turned out every aeroplane in the squadron was the same. So uh, we were grounded for a while while they had to carry out modifications. They took off the pointed wingtips and uh, put on elliptical ones again and uh, strengthened the fuselage and the engine mountings and so on. And after that we had no further trouble. So uh, after uh, quite a few combats in the Yarrakan, which is the rice bowl of, uh, down on the, the Burma coast, the Japanese tried to come through there and failed. The main attack then came through Imphal, 1,200 miles to the north. So we were sent up to Imphal where we operated from <coughs> uh, various strips. Um, the last one being called King the Tombi, which is an all-weather strip. And uh, you'll know the flying conditions. So um, I'll th sort of leave those. We carried a lot of operations. The Japanese attacked us frequently there, and we had frequent combats right over the Imphal strip. Um, but uh, generally, we came off the better by a long way. Uh, and eventually, we did get command of the air. But um, the thing I would really like to mention was uh, a well-documented episode uh, to do with the Chindits. And uh, the Chindits were uh, a special force under uh, Brigadier Wingate at the time, who was regarded as a madman, actually, by many of, many of the senior officers in the British Army, 
um, and he uh, put together this, this force of irregulars to operate behind Japanese lines. Uh, they did one uh, expedition, which were, they had to march in and march out 200 miles through the jungles, and they didn't they fare very well. The second expedition was much better arranged, where they established a, a base uh, right 200 miles behind the Japanese lines at a place called Broadway, codenamed Broadway, right near um, a bend in the Irrawaddy River, which is one of the major rivers of Burma. There's another major one called the Chinwin, closer to the Chin Hills. And uh, there the Japanese, it was going to resist Japanese attacks. Uh, and their aim was to cause as much disruption behind the Japanese lines as possible to take the pressure off the, the attacks on Imphal and the uh, attempt at uh, invading India. Um, well, our job, we were sent in to protect this broadway um, from the Japanese Air Force. And uh, the problem was, it was right at the limit of the Spitfire's range, so that you had to operate uh, from Broadway and land back there. There was nowhere else to go. And so if you were under attack, of course, you had to finish and, and rearm and refuel back at Broadway. Um, and this, this was a, a, a very real risk. Now, we sent several lots in there. We lost a number of people. But the particular one I was involved in uh, did capture the imagination a little bit. And uh, the animals of the, one of the major dog fights of the RAF. Um, and uh, Ron Fulstow has painted a painting about it, too, of which prints are <laughs> available. Um, and some other painter in Britain has also painted one as a book frontispiece. Uh, However, I'll describe that one a little bit. Um, we were sent in before dawn in the morning, six of us led by our CO, who was a day older than I was. He was a young, young chap. And they th thought very highly of him. He had a great future ahead of him. Um, we landed um, right on dawn, and the, the strip we had to land in was a very difficult one. It was uh, 700 yards long, which was the, about the, the minimum length for landing of a, a Spitfire. Uh, to get and use that 700 yards, you had to make a precautionary landing coming over very high trees, over a pond, and then plop the aeroplane down on the strip. Uh, do the best braking you could, and you couldn't brake very easily with the Spitfires, most of the Spitfire pilots would know, and try to stop before you entered the swamp at the far end and more trees. And there were paddy fields covered with wrecked gliders and so on uh, on our starboard side. Anyway, we all managed to land all right. I parked my aeroplane without knowledge over a delayed action bomb and uh, had to move it, and I wasn't very impressed by looking down the hole, right underneath the fuselage, and you could see the fins, the tangled fins of this bomb. So I had to shift it, which I did very gingerly, I must admit, um, while the uh, bomb disposal people decided how to deal with it. Well, after breakfast, we had a radar, an exper experimental radar. It didn't have much of it uh, in India. Uh, on the strip there, and it picked up four bogies coming in at a very low level. Uh, the CO said, we'll get strapped into our six aeroplanes, which were in a little alcove close to the, the jungle, just on one side of the strip. 
and um, he waited. Now, um, the radar kept reporting with messages coming up saying that the, these two bogies were getting in closer. They were 30 miles away to start with, so when they were picked up, so there wasn't much time. And, and the CEO was faced with a terrible decision. Did he take off the whole six of us? Or did he only take off of two? Uh, if the six of us came in and there were more which weren't picked up, uh, we'd have to land back while still under attack um, and probably get shot down. Uh, if he sent two up, the others on the ground could wait and could take off later on if things got nasty. Uh, eventually he decided on just two going up and started up with his number, or he ordered his number two to start up with him. A chap called Bill Coulter. Uh, no experience or very little experience. Of, he shouldn't have been there really. And the CEO changed his mind and uh, ordered me to start up and uh, Coulter to shut down. So a pair of us went out. Uh, we'd, we were on a takeoff run and the CEO had just left the ground. He even got his, got his wheels up. I was still on the ground, just reaching flying speed, when four Oscars came right over the top of us, about 100 feet above us, on a strafing run. They must have known exactly where these other Spitfires were, and strafed the lot. Well, the CO and I both tried to do a split arse to use the term, a sort of a stall turn off the ground virtually to try to get behind them, but you couldn't do that with no, no flying speed. But um, we were on full emergency power, and uh, so then we uh, went straight up vertically and on, onto our backs at about 2,000 feet and rolled out, and to find ourselves in the middle of about another two dozen Oscars, which weren't picked up. So um, the CO was over on my left, about, oh, be about 100 yards away, and uh, shooting at one, and he had about three on his tail. And uh, so I turned to go over to have a crack at them, and I looked under my own tail, and here he was one right sitting under me, moving away as well. So uh, at that particular time, the uh, CO who was calling out over the RT, no doubt to the, uh, the guys on the ground, just stopped. That was it. And uh, he'd uh, bought it. I never saw him again, so I had the lot to myself, which was a great pleasure. The, uh, I must say, uh, at that time, uh, it, it, it focuses, the mind, focuses the mind very well, you know, when you're faced with a position like that. And uh, you, 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 your mind works very quickly. <laughs> My, mine was to not make myself a very good target. Uh, well. All I can say is uh, we flew all over the place with uh, this is full emergency power the whole time. We never got above about 2,000 feet. Uh, my method of getting rid of them, we had heard that the Japanese were, pilots were not, or were susceptible to G-forces. Uh, and they couldn't stand the same amount of G that we could. And it was only hearsay. Uh, it wasn't correct, but that's what I used. And it seemed to work. Um, I, uh, of course, hauled the aeroplane up to leave these guys behind me, at least to get their, their shooting under me, uh, sawing away at the rudder and, uh, and the, the wings at the same time to make myself a hard take and then whip straight over into a vertical dive. Uh, aileron turning and kicking <laughs> left and right and hauled it out at maximum G. And I lost them. 
there were at least two, possibly three, and they lost them. And immediately three more of it attached themselves because they were all around a whole bunch of them, at least two dozen. And, uh, and they were at height and they were well controlled. So and most of the flying energy or the power energy in the Spitfire was taken up with the manoeuvring, of course, to, so they couldn't get acceleration to get away. And anyway, they could come uh, from their height and uh, match my speed. So I found uh, I couldn't get rid of them at all. So it was a matter of just making yourself a damned hard target. Just at one stage, one was full enough to try a head-on attack, and that was the only time one got in front. And uh, uh, we both had a crack at each other. Uh, I saw my cannon shells strike, but uh, I didn't know what happened to them. But the army said later on, this guy, they, they watched all this. Crashed. So this went on for 40 minutes, and I was exhausted. <laughs> I'd had it. It's like being in a boxing ring, hammering away flat out for 40 minutes. Can you imagine it? Uh, if you've been in boxing <coughs> rings and done it, you're absolutely exhausted. So anyway, I, I was looking. I thought, uh, uh, there's no way I'm going to survive this. Uh, I'd rather, rather than be shot down by these bastards, I looked for a bit of a clearing. I thought of plonking the thing down and making a run for it, but I would have been killed because of uh, And I actually just noticed a place quickly while all this manoeuvring was going on and uh, went towards it and I thought I'll have a last crack at these so-and-sos in, in respect of what's behind me. Uh, they can shoot away but I'll have a crack at somebody. Turned around and uh, this guy was empty, they'd gone. Uh, they'd run out of fuel. Now the Japanese, I, I didn't uh, mention, their endurance was much greater than that of a Spitfire, about something like two or three times time they could spend in the air, they could spend hours there. The Spitfire with no long-range tank could uh, um, do about an hour and a half with a combat. So you can get an idea of the, the risks involved there. Um, we managed to land. Uh, I landed back at the strip which was a, a massive flame, everything burning and so on. They'd really done a wonderful job and they, they were quite successful. Um, the aeroplane was really a write-off, and uh, however, it was still flyable, so uh, I flew it back to Kangla Tombi, the 200 miles. I spoke to the Vice Marshal, and uh, he immediately withdrew the whole detachment, and we didn't ever go back there. We flew from there over, but it wasn't very successful. However, the, the Brits seemed to hold the place against the attacks. Well, that was one combat. Um, the uh, I could go and talk about the, the food, I suppose, and then one or two other little incidents. One of which I would like to tell you about is a, a night landing we were forced to make. Uh, but uh, to start with, the, the food we had was terrible. <laughs> um, they had these sausages, soy links. That was all they had. Morning, noon and night, we had them for breakfast, lunch and tea. Uh, very little in the way of greens. Uh, the odd bit of fruit, plantains. Uh, plantain is a type of banana with seeds in it. It's like eating liquid soap and spitting out the seeds. Terrible things. Uh, and we were gradually worn down. The diseases were terrible there. The operating conditions, the living conditions, were not very good. They were better than some of them we'd had. But um, I won't dwell on those too long. But eventually our health suffered. And uh, then we became subject to all the various diseases. Malaria was rife. Dengue was rife. 
Uh, we got jungle ulcers. I got all of these things at one time. Jungle ulcers. Uh, everything that bit, sucked, and, and stung was there. There were scorpions. There were all, all sorts of. There was a what's that bad? The black plague fever. Bubonic plague was there, and there was a very nasty disease called sprue which if a person caught it, he, he just faded away and died. And I found out later on, looking at the internet, there is such a disease. They didn't know much about it then, and they didn't know what caused it or what the problem was. It seemed to be something which interfered with the metabolism of, of people. So all of these things were there, and uh, we operated under the Indian Army, basically, where our food was supplied by contractors. So you can imagine a private enterprise Indian a lot of contractors in those days supplying the food and, and all the services and you had these camp followers and so on. Uh, were, so, and we slept on, in grass huts and, uh, and on charpoys, which was a bamboo bed. Not very comfortable, I tell you. We had, we had about two blankets and that was all, no mattress or anything. Our clothing uh, was just denim, rotted off your back in a month. You were never dry, you were wet through. Uh, was the, um, Assam was the wettest place in the world, allegedly, 300 inches in, in the monsoon period of three months. Um, and uh, the heat was, well, 99 to 100% humidity, uh, around about 80 to 90 degrees, I suppose. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, no, in the 40s, anyway, Celsius. I get mixed up these days. It'll be in the 40s probably, the late 30s and uh, early 40s most of the time. So you're constantly wet through and your clothing just rotted off Well, you just have a new shirt made. So the guy out of denim material and so on. But we were all longs for flying because of fire and you were completely covered. Um, you still got the minus 20s, minus 30s at altitude even on those climbs, strangely enough. Um, the armament, we carried uh, the usual revolver. Um, we carried a dar, which was a long knife. Um, what? Yeah, it was around about two feet long, I suppose. That was for chopping at the bamboo if you got shot down and had to try to make your way out. Um, we carried a commander knife, and I personally carried a steam gun as well with the extra ammunition. Um, so we sort of outfitted ourselves a little bit, we were a bit cowboyish. Um, just the last bit, um, this night landing I was talking about. Uh, flying for the RAF in India was completely different from that which uh, applied in uh, North Africa or in Britain. Um, they seemed to have a, a First World War attitude where they were quite prepared to write you off. And, without, uh, this was my own impression, and a typical example happened when we were sent on a convoy patrol, and there were six of us, and uh, on that occasion I happened to command that patrol, and uh, they didn't tell us what the convoy carried, but uh, we were kept there, uh, it was in the late afternoon, and we were kept there right until dark. Um, I, on two occasions, protested that we were running short of fuel, and we had no means of getting down. There were no, the strip we were oper operating from was just a dusty piece of paddy field. 
there were no radio directions, there were no radio contact with it, there were no means of night flying, there were no lights, there, were, there was nothing there. Uh, and that was the only place we could get back to to land. Uh, they ignored the, all of this and just said, stay on the station. And there, there's no twilight, by the way, it's about oh, 10 minutes between sundown and dark, pitch dark. And on that particular night, there was no moon and nothing, it was pitch black. And uh, so they kept us on there and, and then finally released us so it was too dark for any, any Japanese aircraft to be so silly as to <laughs> be flying around there. And uh, I was then faced with, well, how the hell do we, what do we do? We can't land anywhere. We don't even know where to, well, I knew the course roughly, where to go, but uh, there was no way of finding this place. And uh, in the distance, and it was pitch black by then, I saw very lights being fired uh, way in the distance, and they were continually being fired with short intervals while the guy was reloading. And uh, I noticed they were from the same place and they were in the same direction all the time. So I thought, well, here's somebody who is perhaps trying to give us some aid to get down. So we flew over there and uh, this kept on going. So I thought, oh, well, I suppose either we bail out and just this means six Spitfire Mark 8s. And there were only two squadrons of us in India with them at that time. Um, right off six Spitfires, or else try to get down. And I guess that this guy was trying to give us a point where we could touch the ground near him, and he was firing in the direction, so that we, our landing direction, and that's all we had, I had to assume that. So uh, the others were left lying around, and I did a, a letdown uh, on instruments, aiming to hit the ground somewhere near him. Uh, get an idea where the ground was for the origin of the, the, the very lights. And we eventually did hit the ground near him too, and, and the, the ensuing bounce, of course, once you hit the ground, you could immediately stop the, the, the bounce. And uh, got it down the ground and, and kept it straight through instruments, and managed to stop without hitting anything, and uh, a vehicle turned up with a torch on the thing and led me back to where this guy was. Then we had radio contact so I could help the other guys down a bit and uh, got them through one at a time. Because of intruders like that, you didn't have any navigation lights so the guys fanned out and kept well out from this. Got one at a time to switch his nav lights on and then tried to guide him in. And we got the whole six down, one, one prank. But he, he survived, he didn't get uh, injured. So we got Fired the spit, six Spitfires down under those conditions. I thought that wasn't a bad effort with a night landing uh, under those conditions. Now, there were many other times, Salerno, where I got shot down. That was another interesting one where the first radio control bombs were dropped on the big war, battleship Warspite by three Dorniers, uh, three very brave air crews, German ones. Uh, they came in and escorted over a great umbrella of fighters and got away with it. Two of them were shot down, but uh, we lost all, we lost five of our six Spitfires in that little episode. Um, and then there was the hellhole of bone, which was a case to itself. That was really the worst part of my experiences. Well, I suppose I've said enough, so I've taken too much time. So we'll leave it at that. You know.